bringing creativity and autonomy and agency back to people's hands is something that I guess we should work towards and creativity is what makes us human you know you have a problem and you find a way to solve it you shouldn't have to read the manual and study eight years just in order to not replace the light switch welcome to restart radio i'm dave pickering and i make podcasts The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In this episode, we interview technologist and researcher Philippe Fonseca, who has spent most of his life working to build a sustainable relationship between technology and people in Brazil. From ingenious tricks by indigenous people to get free airtime, to repurposing discarded technology for art and expression, Brazil offers so many examples of grassroots innovation. Philippe explains how he learned more about Brazilian approaches to problem solving and how these cultural practices can influence the use of technology for social benefit. We also talk about how Brazilians see Silicon Valley's model for innovation and the very dangerous political moment that his country is currently going through. Throughout this episode, we'll also be interweaving some clips from Joseph Bryant, a tech and culture commentator, as well as a restart party goer. He tells us about his experience fixing his TV. Using his basic technical knowledge, along with creativity and improvisation, he tried his luck diagnosing his failing screen and soldering things back together. The screen just went completely dead. No power, no power light, completely dead. I wasn't interested in replacing it, so I thought I'll be brave and I'll have a go at trying to fix it. My name is Felipe Fonseca. I live in Ubatuba, a relatively small place by the coast in Brazil. I've been working almost 20 years with projects related to technology, culture, science and society. This is our first restart interview in a graveyard area outside. It was actually very nice, generally, what you can hear in the background, apart from occasional little bits of machinery. So anyway, if you could tell us about your meta-recycling project that you did back in 2002, your cyberpunk dreams and what you learned from the experience. This project, we call it in Portuguese meta-reciclaging, it started with the idea of getting second-hand computers, installing free, free and open source software in them and making them usable again. At first we started to install operating systems and give them away to social projects to be used as computers. And some time later, we started to experiment with those machines and do other things with them that were not used exactly as the sort of equipment that you sit in front of and type things in a keyboard. But we started to go in the direction of doing artworks and experimental projects using those machines. We also have machines, computers that uh, are deemed as obsolete and basically discarded. But can you talk a little bit about this specific situation of Brazil at that time? So Brazil, uh, probably that time also more, was known for inequality and having a lot of people consuming really high-end equipment and then people who maybe had lived without and then people who also would basically go through waste and find things, discarded things, and 
and make use of them. Can you tell us a little bit where your project fit in with all of that? Yeah, I guess, you know, inequality is is an old problem in Brazil and it's far from being solved. We have been through some years of slight relief, but it's been like six or eight years and then it's getting worse again. But I guess there are some elements into that. Back in that time, there was a small thing growing about using free software in public projects. The government of the state of Rio Grande do Sul in the south started uh, using free software in their projects and they started to create uh, public access spaces. We call them telecentros, telecenters, in which people just would go in and use uh, computers for free. And those computers were using Linux, were using free and open source software. And because of that, there was more attention being paid to free software as an alternative for digital inclusion. Is this at all connected to the World Social Forum and a lot of the social movement that people associate with Brazil at the time? Yeah, I guess in the start of MetaHisclaging, we were exactly in that crossroads. There were people who were disappointed with the dot-com bubble, you know, the burst in 99. So people who imagine, you know, they could be creative and innovate and create a new world. There were people that were stemming from the anti-globalization movement in Seattle and then the World Social Forum that started to be organized in Porto Alegre, also in the south, in the state of Rio Grande do Sul, in 2000. And all those things got together, and at some point, the idea of using free software to digital inclusion projects took place, and in 2003, actually, there was this new government of President Lula da Silva that, with all his personal problems, he assembled a team of very interesting people. And then these people started to get together, and MetaHistaging was already created by then but we're moving in the same direction of trying to get the new possibilities of technologies new creative possibilities and also all those ideas of how to address social inequality with new solutions instead of just trying to repeat the old solutions that they, they used to have Taking the back off was absolutely easy, but inside I was faced with circuit boards and cables and it was daunting. I'd been to restart parties a couple of times and learned a couple of bits about soldering, so I thought, okay, take a deep breath, the worst I can do is break it more than it's already broken. A quick search on the internet told me if there was no power light, it was probably just the power board. So I'm stuck just looking at these things by eye. And then I find it. I find one tiny component, one flat little disc that looks like a blue smarty that had, had a hole burnt through the middle of it. This was the capacitor that I wanted to replace. But unfortunately, because it's blown, I can't tell what it was. I find a board number, I google it. It tells me where I can buy a replacement board. And eventually, after about five or six different variations, finally searching for the board number and the word schematic, I end up with a Chinese PDF document showing the layout of all the components on the board. I can see roughly the shape of the board where the big things go, and I can work out which of the little labelled numbers refer to my burnt smarty. And there, at the bottom of the page, there is a number. And if I Google that number and the word capacitor, it takes me straight to eBay. I wait two days and these pieces finally show up and I look at them and I start to get a little scared. I don't know what way round they're supposed to go. I don't know if I can get the old piece off. My soldering skills are less 
them perfect. But I think I'm looking at a broken TV. If worse comes to worse, I can buy a £20 board. Let's go for it. some of your writing you try to explain to a, maybe an external audience what the muchirão is so the muchirão is a like a special brazilian social i guess happening can you explain to listeners like what what is this muchirão yeah i guess i i'll just take the the long path to to to, to go to that we started doing these things in sao paulo uh, we were inspired by, by some other projects we've seen in the u.s and actually here in uk it was the low-tech project in sheffield was one of our inspirations with you know james walbank that i eventually met later on we realized that there was this possibility of getting old computers that were still usable if we stripped all the you know useless software that used to run on those computers then one of the volunteers of metacyclaging developed the linux distribution for old computers And because of that, we were invited to work in larger scale projects. One of them was the telecenters in the city of Sao Paulo. They used to have 108 telecenters all running free software back in 2002. And we started to interact with them. And uh, later in 2003, we were invited to start sketching up the proposal for the Digital Culture Project. There was this new Minister of Culture in the Lula da Silva government. The Minister of Culture was Gilberto Gil. Because we were involved with the Ministry of Culture, most of us were, you know, white, urban, middle-class, lefty males. And at some point we were invited to go to the countryside, to the small cities. And at first we thought we would be teaching people, you know, about this new world of technologies. But we soon realized that we were there to learn about Brazilian cultures and how people can actually make a living even when there are no no resources so we found that we found actually two you may call it i don't know cultural practices or characteristics in brazil one of them is mutirão mutirão is a kind of dynamic way to solve problems collaboratively so whenever you need to Say you have kids and the kids are growing up and you need to buy an extra room, you know, to, to an extra bedroom. You invite all your friends and family, you prepare food for everybody and people work together in that. And someone will bring the, the, the construction materials, some other people will come uh, with knowledge. And this group will assemble in that day and everybody will build the thing together. By the end, everybody will eat together and the group spreads out. So it's not a kind of formal institution, but it's a kind of on-site and on-demand collaboration. And it's really widely known, this practice of mutirão all over Brazil. Even when you hire people, I later found out, when you hire people to build uh, something, the day in which you have to put cement on the rooftop, that is a very labor-intensive activity, and it has to be done quickly, especially in places where it rains a lot, as is in Ubatuba. There is this practice, even if people are hired, you prepare either a barbecue or a big bowl of feijoada for everybody because this practice of mutirão is really widely known. And the other practice that we found by going to the countryside, of course, we knew about those things, you know, it's it's uh, it's culturally recognizable, but we understood that they were very special, including in the way that people would make use of technologies in Brazil, both the mutirão and the other thing that is gambiarra. And gambiarra is the term that defines this improvised quick solution for whatever problem you have we called it uh, many many ways to 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 try to 
to make it understood, but you can call it tactical creativity. And gambiarra is the solution that you create that works only for that specific problem and you create that even if you don't have the proper materials the proper knowledge if you don't have time to spend on that thing if you don't have the the tools so you can solve problems by applying mostly creativity and manual skills and at some point we found that because we had some time of economic growth in brazil we were concerned that these practices would disappear because at some point people would start buying cheap shit from China, as we call it. So this tactical creativity would be disappearing, mostly because people didn't need to fix things anymore and they could buy new. But we were concerned because, you know, that would put us in this path of, you know, generating more waste and throwing things away and in, in times of environmental concerns and economic crisis, we don't think that's a good idea. But we felt at some point that we needed to make it valued by Brazilians, especially educated people in Brazil, because educated people in Brazil thought about gambiarra and mutirão as things that shouldn't be done at all. People should have the proper tools, should have the proper knowledge, should be trained to follow procedures and do things in a sustainable way. Bringing creativity and autonomy and agency back to people's hands is something that, I guess, we should uh, work towards. And this is something that we've been trying to draw attention to in Brazil. It's like, you know, educated people shouldn't treat those things that things that should be dismissed and, and ignored, but also, on the contrary, should be valorizing them and saying these things are... Uh, important about Brazilian cultures. But I don't think they are exclusive from Brazil. So there's, you know, there's all practices related to bricolage in French-speaking countries. And so these are cultural practices that have been around, you know, for centuries. I wrote a text once that I said, you know, creativity is what makes us human. You have a problem and you find a way to solve it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have to read the manual and study eight years just in order to, you know, replace the light switch. Here's Joseph again, who faced a hitch in his fixing plan when he found that he needed to change an internal fuse in addition to changing the capacitor. So I've now got a cap at one end, nothing at the other. I'm panicking. I have started this project. My skill level is way below even this simple task. But I improvise. I take apart a standard three-pin ball plug. I take the fuse holder from it and I solder it into the position. I make sure it's touching nothing else. I make sure that the solder connections are very firm. I then go in and use a little bit of two-part epoxy to hold the fuse holders in place so that it's not actually the soldering that's giving it the structure. And then I pop a replacement fuse in, check as far as I can using the multimeter, and it seems to be working fine. One of the things you've also written about in your reflections on technology and people is 
the maker culture. So this emergence of the maker spaces and the maker culture that has always existed, as you've already as you've already indicated, people have always been solving problems and making things. But there's a, this particular manifestation of the maker culture. And you wrote that maker spaces have become focused on innovation, on quote, what valuable new thing can I come up with that will make me famous, stroke rich, stroke sexy. And what's the difference between this kind of maker culture and the gambiaja and the repair culture that you mentioned before? Yeah, I, I remember being very excited when I first read about the maker culture because it was maybe 2006, 2007, and it resonated with what we were doing with metareciclaging and all the projects in Brazil. By then, I guess we had maybe eight or ten metareciclaging labs in different parts of the country working with the Digital Culture Project in the Ministry of Culture. Others were more autonomous or related to social projects. And it was really refreshing to see that these things that we've been doing with our hands and disassembling computers and putting things back on and experimenting in a more physical way and concrete way, they were connected to what people were doing elsewhere. But I guess it was like two or three years later it became one of those overhyped things. The moment I've seen this thing going in a, in, a, in a way that I didn't like was when Chris Anderson wrote uh, his own take on the maker culture. I guess the, the name of the, the book is Makers, something like that. Before that I read Cory Doctor of Makers and it was really cool. But then Chris Anderson's take was like, you know, coming up with prototypes that would then be mass-produced in China. And it was about the dream that in the 90s people had with their bands, you know, becoming rich and famous and, and sign a contract with the big label. It felt as though people were trying to bring that to the hacker culture. In the beginning, the maker culture was really connected to hacker spaces and to hack labs. And later it became a sort of trendy thing in big cities. And again, it was again about white people in urban scenarios, middle class, males, trying to become rich and famous. And I say, you know, that's that's not what we're trying to do here. In a sense, it, it can be useful. So I guess one of the things that... I've been more recently able to do is to approach people who are in high-level administration posts in waste management that used to be uh, a place in which they wouldn't allow us in and now they are interested in maker culture because it became fashionable. So it can be tactically, in a Muchirão and Gambiarra way, it can be useful for us. But even when I use those you know, more superficial ways to define the maker culture, I don't believe what I'm saying. But you know, it's a kind of pirate flag that I wave just to make sure that I can go into some places and convince people to do things that they wouldn't allow otherwise. Uh, we also engaged in all sorts of public policies projects for digital culture and for information technology to access information and at some point there was a conflict about two different takes on how to promote digital inclusion one of them was about creating community projects that people could access and they would go to these places and have access to all sorts of equipment. And the other perspective was that digital inclusion was about making computers more affordable so people could buy and use at their own homes. And, of course, I wasn't the first, you know, the first team. I, I, I really believe that we should put more effort into creating community projects because it's, it was not a, only about technology. But in the end, uh, it was in 2011 the home residential digital inclusion project side won and actually they they kind of centralized everything into one part of the federal government 
and they expelled all the community projects from there. So mo wow. most community projects uh, about uh, digital inclusion in Brazil disappeared since 2011. One of the things I've learned by working with the Guarani people was that after we set up this wireless uh, network, the leader there that was taking care of the project, he called me saying, you know, the guys are using this cracked software to have access to the internet without using the password, so they're not paying for it. And I went there, you know, to find out what, what that was about. And... It turned out they were not using without the password, but I learned that there was this Android application that would give them access to 3G networks in the city center, wherever there was coverage, without having the proper data plan. It was a software that they ran that would go to a proxy and connect uh, from inside the, the, the mobile carrier. And it was, uh, it, its use is widespread in, in the native Brazilians because they have, they need, they, they need more, uh, you know, connectivity than, than, you know, other people because they are really in, a, in this kind of, you know, territory conflict and they in some places they, they are, uh, they are in, in, you know, real danger. Their life is in danger. So they need access to the internet, and they use internet without paying. You know, it's another Brazilian gambiarra hack software. That's really interesting. I was my next question was, you know, have has everyone in Brazil bought into this kind of consumer-driven, investor-driven vision of technology that Silicon Valley is promoting? And I, you just answered the question. But it seems like it's it's gained traction in Brazil over the last couple of years. Can you tell us what's happened? Yeah, in, in big cities, at least, uh, the way technology is taught in schools is going to this, uh, you know, startup model. And one thing we're trying to, to do now to, you know, to counterbalance is to steal uh, a sort of methodology and vocabulary, but to change it in a way. So we're talking about, you know, social ecological innovation. So we're trying to use these startup methodologies to create innovative projects whose drive is not profit or not only profit, but also, you know, social ecological perspective and social inclusion and long-term sustainability. So it's a kind of boundary object. You know, we don't believe that, actually. We, we have to use those terms in order to, to be heard by a wider public. So we don't actually believe those things uh, exactly as they are used in the market. But we make use, again, as a kind of pirate flag so we can get some people who would not be interested in, in our stuff. We would, like, lure them into supporting our projects and even sometimes uh, putting resources into them. Tell us about Brazilian visions of the future and how they approach technology, democracy and equality and what are the blind spots and what is truly unique. What I'm trying to to focus in is, I guess, inspired by what's happening in Spain also, is getting local, thinking about how to improve uh, democracy and how to make things more interesting and more viable in the local level. So what I'm focusing right now is 
in doing things, especially in Ubatuba. So I don't think we have a national a national dream right now. Everybody's really trying to survive. But the fact is that this crisis has also made people more aware that they need to connect locally. In Ubatuba, we, we are grouping up some similar projects that used to have, for instance, they used to have their own spaces, their own venues, and now we, we have to get together to share spaces. So we are connecting more locally. And in a sense, you know, it's it's a good outcome of the crisis. And as you were mentioning, you know, in England, during and after the war, people had this kind of more, you know, community exchange. And maybe that's something that we can see more. And I'm really excited to, to have, now we have a new space in Ubatuba that we're opening up for all sorts of social innovation projects to just use the space and share the cost with us. This is the direction we're taking, at least for the next couple of years. It's like going local and try to do things uh, in a more intimate way instead of having that big scenario in which we'll change the whole country. This is not viable. It doesn't seem feasible anymore. This smaller place by the coast in Brazil I live in, uh, Ubatuba, is a touristic paradise. There are 84 beaches, and most of its territory is a natural reserve. Actually, there are three or four reserve conservation units there. It's Atlantic rainforest. It's a very unique ecosystem of Atlantic rainforest, which is beautiful if you can ever go. Yeah, the Atlantic rainforest has a bigger biodiversity. The Atlantic rainforest used to cover all the eastern part of Brazil, and now there's only 7% of it left. But in Ubatuba, it's more than 80% is still Atlantic rainforest. Uh, even, it, even in this only 7% remaining of the original rainforest in Brazil, there are more species of animals uh, and plants than the whole Europe. Uh, so it's a very biodiverse ecosystem. And we are in there, but the thing is that the government, the local government in Ubatuba thinks that the city must develop heavy industry in order to make money or the city should develop the mass tourism market. And we're trying to bring other alternatives to it and one of them is working with free and open source software technologies and the other is trying to make the city become a hub of technology for environmental purposes. So it has to do with you know, scientific attraction that the city has. There is a lot of scientific production being made about the city, but the city doesn't have an university at the same time. So we're trying to do something in the middle so we can bring IT to there and prove the, to the local government that that's a viable path to develop the city. It wasn't possible some years ago because the Internet was really uh, slow. Uh, in the city but now these things are improving and we're trying to set up some companies there that work with IT especially uh, open source technologies and now it's becoming a kind of viable way so this company is not uh, based in Ubatuba it's an American company that I work for and most of the develop- development team is in Kyrgyzstan but we're setting up a local team in Ubatuba we have like three people already there and the idea is for this company the the Brazilian branch of this company to become the first step into developing Ubatuba as a a spot for open source technologies And with the TV face down the board resting on its standoffs everything plugged in where I hope it goes. I go to the wall and I turn on the power 
and the TV comes on. I can see the light from the screen leaking back through the metal protective plates. It's working. Brazil's Mutural show the power of non-hierarchical spaces where knowledge can be shared, problems solved and technology repurposed and remade. While the Mutural and Gambayara may be social practices that are specific to Brazil, as Philippe suggests, their spirit exists in every culture. They definitely live in every restart party and repair cafe. While maker culture now seems very linked to a specific kind of innovation and consumption, we can embrace the power of community action for collective benefit rather than focusing on individual benefits. We're inspired by Philippe's dedication to his community of Ubatuba in a time of crisis. Yet it seems clear that the trajectory of community technologists like Philippe is inextricably linked to national and global forces. Our stories are linked in ways we may not yet perceive. Restart Radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at 1.30 on Tuesdays on Resonance 104.4 FM, repeated on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And thanks to Restart's communication intern, Isabel, who did the research and episode planning for this episode. It's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.